Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. My name is Lori, and I'm joined by Sarah today, which is super exciting. And we have a guest, which is even more exciting. So today we are joined by Alicia, who uh, lives near me in Vancouver, British Columbia, because I always forget that there's multiple Vancouver's. She is going to be talking about uh, her experiences as a nurse with Borderline and kind of self-discovery about her diagnosis um, and there's lots of very interesting things we look forward to knowing about. So Alicia, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself generally, um, why you're here, what you want to talk about? Yeah. So as she said, I live in Vancouver. I work right now as a nurse. My history is working as an emergency vet tech, which I still do casually and love it. And yeah, I'm just excited to chat, share some of my experience being diagnosed with living with borderline. Um, a big part of that being through nursing school and all those challenges it brought. Um, and then kind of segue into my journey of recovery and building a better life for myself. And I think my hope in sharing my story is really to just be a little part in destigmatizing and just help anyone who's living with it feel a little bit less alone. Amazing. And you are doing a big part of that. I can assure you we're going to have so many people listening to this and really appreciating your story. So do you want to tell us a little bit about um, kind of your journey from the vet tech piece to going into nursing school? Because I feel like Moving from animals to humans is an interesting um, shift in a life. It is. It's an interesting shift, yet has so many quirky similarities between the two. Um, I became a vet tech when I was very young, went straight out of high school, worked that for a very long time and sort of reached a point in my life where I was like, okay, I think I'm ready for another career. I love what I do, but kind of want to do something similar. And so that's when I landed on nursing. I had no idea it would be during a pandemic and become this huge dumpster fire of online school. But yeah, that's sort of how I landed there. And I do work pediatrics. So that for me is a segue from the animals and kids. There's a lot of similarities in caring for them. So that's really what I'm passionate about is caring. Yeah. Alicia, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 30. Okay. So you made yeah. the, this kind of shift around 26 or so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh my God. Has COVID been four years? Jeez. <laughs> Dude, my, it will be, it would have been my four year wedding anniversary in two days. I couldn't, I was doing and I was like, is it, would I have been married for three years or four years? I don't even know. I, I swear time just like doesn't COVID. Yeah. Anyways, we don't, we all know COVID doesn't exist or time doesn't exist anymore. COVID is its own time zone. <laughs> literally, literally. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if we'll ever recover from that part of it. So you went into nursing school and I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I feel like both nursing and working with kids would make me so dysregulated. So I'm curious, like how, like what made you choose nursing, right? Obviously there's similarities, but that's, that is a big shift. That nurturing piece. And I honestly, like now I can look back at it and kind of make the connections, but I think really there's a piece to it that me living behind closed doors, not feeling like I can care for myself, but then out in the public on the surface, I can care for these other people. I can take care of these other people. That makes me feel successful with that. And it almost, it almost like for a point filled a void of like the self-care and maybe because I can't do that, I can give that to other people. And so I think that's um, a big part of it for sure. Mm, Yeah, that's really insightful. 
And so you had been struggling with kind of emotion dysregulation, it sounds like, for a while. What did your mental health look like kind of growing up and to the point that you realized you had BPD? Yeah, so growing up, um, definitely a lot of kind of hidden mental health struggles. I was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, but looking back, as we do, I see all the classic symptoms when I was growing up. I was diagnosed with depression very early, actually. Um had a really bad situation with bullying when I was nine or 10 years old. That's probably one of the most significant things that affected my development and all of that and how I regulate and process emotions. And then, yeah, teenage years definitely had some deep, dark times. And then, um, yeah, when I think back to my 20s, I started having a lot more of those struggles. And then as it approaches sort of that sort of towards the BPD time, I just it was getting to the point where I was having these extreme, extreme mood swings, as we know, comes with BPD. And I had no reason for it. And it was always just chopped up to being I have depression. And then I found myself just saying, why is my depression so much worse than everyone else's? And it's just that you don't have a reason and you're just struggling. And it's exactly like everyone with BPD, I think, can agree that I know how I'm behaving and I want to do anything to not behave like this, but I don't know what to do. And I think that was really what left me, left me wondering like, for lack of a better term, like what is wrong with me? And I don't view it as that now, but in the moment you just feel so alienated and alone when, when dealing with all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I mean, Sarah and I, you can see are nodding (laughs) ferociously (laughs) here because I, yeah, I mean, I think we all kind of experience that we're all the same age. So, and live in like very similar areas. Um, So yeah, like hearing depression and anxiety, which are really important and like we need to talk about, but just being like, but this can't be the same depression and anxiety that my friends are experiencing. It's just not, it's not on the same level. Yeah. Like depression doesn't make us do the things that borderline makes us do. Let's be real. Yeah. Like totally <laughs> in the same ballpark. Alicia, I do have a question and I'm even like uncomfortable saying this because of my own stuff, but like as someone and Lori maybe can chime in too, as someone who experienced a ton of bullying in very strange ways, because I was sometimes in the in-group and then by high school, not right. But like, I don't, I've never even talked in therapy about having been bullied. Like it is so shameful for me to say it like now, and you just like owned it, brought it out. And like, my inner child is like throwing up. Right. So tell me like, what is, tell me about that. Like, how are you so just firm through a lot of therapy? (laughs) Honestly. Yeah. It at the beginning of all of this, I wouldn't have even said like, I knew I got bullied so badly. I knew that I had like suicide ideation when I was very, very young, like to the point of 10, 11 years old. And I think for a long time, I really just like black that out as we do with a lot of trauma you just ignore it and don't deal with it and then yeah you start to go through these things and you're like wait a minute I did have like I had all these symptoms of mental illness when I was very very young and then you start thinking about why why did my brain develop the way it did and unlike a lot of BPD stories like I grew up with an amazing family my parents are the most supportive parents you could ever ask for in the world and So I think that's sometimes how stuff like that gets missed too, because it's like, well, you had a great family life. Why? No, there's no way this could happen to you. And yeah, things like bullying might seem so small to someone or to the people who are doing the bullying and doesn't affect them in years later, but that I think it really takes a toll on you. And 
and definitely like I'm all for advocating to kind of break apart those and even think beyond like when you're when you're younger it doesn't necessarily have to be a fit the box trauma that you have like it can bullying had like a severe severe impact on me so I think that that consideration is really important to include when I think about sort of how everything's gone and I think sometimes with bullying parents or teachers kind of minimize it at least when we were kids right it's like oh yeah it's just bullying it's like well no it's actually kind of abuse in a lot of ways right and just because it's by other children or your peers it doesn't mean that it's not going to affect you for a long period of time and Sarah it's such an interesting point because I mean how many episodes have we done like 130 and I don't think we've ever talked about childhood bullying ever well it's interesting Alicia I was just going to ask what was the home environment like for you right because like my home environment was so unique as a child it was very stable and incredibly not stable at the same time. Does that make sense? So like mm-hmm. there was firm routines and there was always all of my immediate health and safety needs were met. And there was this circle around my parents and myself of severe substance use, housing issues with family members, suicide, um, like self-harm, just there was so much in my family and around my family that I think like when I was young, bullying wasn't the thing, right? Like we were always talking about my uncle's suicide. We were always talking about like the family members that were in constant chaos and crisis. And my mom was always running to them and fixing them. So like part, part of me thinks that that's like, why, but also like, I didn't tell my parents that like, so-and-so was calling me fat because then I have to admit I'm fat. That's exactly it. And I think there's so much shame with being bullied. So it's part of it is maybe people aren't aware of what's going on, but I think a big part of it is that it's, you're ashamed of being bullied you're embarrassed and you don't want to go to your parents and say, Hey, I'm being bullied. And for me, it, it wasn't me going to my parents saying, Hey, I'm being bullied. It was them noticing behavioral changes in me and thankfully doing a lot of investigating and yeah, being as supportive as they were. But I mean, by the time someone learns about it and does that investigating, there's already so much damage done, but that's, yeah, it's pretty hard to reverse. And then, yeah, you left, you left feeling shameful about it. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. And it impacts your life even, you know, 15, 20 years later, because I know a lot of listeners are parents or family members of um, people with borderline or kids that they suspect have borderline. We don't talk about the positives as much as I think we, sh- we could. So what, what did your parents do? Well, what helped? My parents always, always made me feel safe. I always knew I had a safe space to tell them whatever. And I mean, when you're younger, they can tell you everything's safe, but you're kind of like, oh, I'm still not going to tell you that you're not like a hundred percent transparent when you're that young. Um, but from the time of being a kid all the way, I mean, up until today, my parents are They've just always provided a space for me to be me um, and for me to kind of have my needs met. Um, and I think any of those needs that weren't met were beyond their ability. Um, and so I think they, yeah, providing that support, always being there and really my my mom especially really would kind of know when something was off and do that investigating to sort of figure out, okay, why is this happening? And so I think they were very proactive with that. I love that you said that 
things that didn't work were beyond their control. I think that's so beautiful. And that's like the grace that is so essential for us to give to our parents when we're thinking about repairing relationships where there were like childhood fractures. It sounds like you felt emotionally safe with both of your parents. Is that safe to say? Absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, that's where Lori and I went wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Truth. Truth. Yeah. Uh, What's that like? No. Um, (laughs) Was mental health talked about in your, in your family? Like, do you have siblings or anything like I do. Again, we're all the same age. It's hard. It's hard because we didn't talk about mental health as much back then. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say. Times, right? Times are, times are changing, but yeah, no, times really are different. I remember, yeah, as much as I spoke about bullying and it causing me to feel upset until I was probably in my twenties, like I didn't really talk about trauma that much. Like, of course I went through counseling and stuff, but you don't really absorb it that much when you're younger. So yeah, I don't think I really understood the full extent of it until I was quite a bit older. It makes so much sense that you went into pediatric nursing now. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. No question at all. Your motivation's there for sure, which is beautiful because you're going to be able to support all these little ones in their health journeys, but also in their outside of the hospital situations, right? The work, the work that you do, I'm not going to say what facility you work at, but the work that they do there is like beyond incredible. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine. So in nursing school, you didn't have a borderline diagnosis when you started, right? Correct. Did you know what borderline was? I wouldn't say I probably heard the term before I ever started nursing school. Um, But the first time I actually really learned about it was in one of my mental health rotations, oddly enough. And I mean, at the time I, you learn about it and you touch on it briefly and you learn all the stigma behind it because that's what people teach about BPD is it's this big, bad, untreatable disease that you're with for life and you're unhelpable. And so that's reflecting back. Um, when I, if I think about my sort of, I had a bit of an epiphany moment, I, through the years, um, leading up. So I started nursing school in 2019, um, late. And then, so into 2020, um, I first met my partner in 2020 and we're still together today. And so a lot of the changes I've gone through have been with her and she's kind of grown with me and supported me with that, which we can touch on later, but just really noticing, okay, these mood swings, these mood swings, it's just depression. My depression's worse. And then on went time, I was having, yeah, those episodes, as I like to call them now, meltdowns, whatever you want to term them. I was having them every single day. I remember it was in the summer, my therapist said to me, like, you're drowning you're drowning every day. And I remember that resonated with me so much because my, like I was not living life. And when I think about being in nursing school, like my clinical days, I would be like, you can't plan when these episodes are going to happen and you can't just, okay, I'll just take a deep breath and go to school. There's no way, maybe four hours later you can, but I remember the morning of clinicals at like four in the morning being like, I can't go. I'm having a meltdown. Like, and then because everything's so stigmatized, it's so hard to say, like, I'm having a mental crisis. I'm not coming in. So it's, I have a migraine. I'm throwing up. I'm whatever excuse it is. And yeah, I think that was, that was kind of the bottom of it. And my epiphany moment, I was sitting, this was just over a year ago, probably a year, year and a half ago. I was laying in bed. My partner was asleep. And I was, when I was just thinking like, there's something, there's something. And I just had this light bulb moment and went, oh my God, I remember learning about BPD. And so 
you Google it like you always do. And I, I will say at least I have a little bit of education behind my Googling, but still you yeah. Google and you pull up all the symptoms. And I went like, oh, I don't know. But then you think about it and I don't know, things like high risk behavior. I'm thinking, well, maybe not necessarily, but then you learn that can be reckless spending. That can be so many different things that aren't necessarily seen as reckless when you think about that. And I so just, I'm so sorry. I have to ADHD moment. I have to put Lori a little bit on blast. One time she texted me and was like, I bought the new Dyson hair, air, <laughs> the air wrap, <laughs> such bullshit. Don't buy the I air was like, wrap. $800. Dude, I have a mad, like, I think that's where my impulsivity and nowadays 1000% is. Yeah. Because I can't, I, I, I mean, I used to have a lot of impulsive sex, which I can't do anymore. It's really hard to have impulsive sex when you're married. So yeah, spending is. We should do a whole episode. I LOL'd so hard (laughs) at the Dyson. I was like, first of all, why is a vacuum company making hair products? That's fine. Second of all, I'm thinking like, maybe I should stop buying knockoff brand curling irons at the Ross value section and my hair would look better. Like, and And the funny thing is I don't even do my, I don't even do my hair. Like now that my hair is short, I do because I have to, but like when my hair was long, I would just air dry my hair every day. So it didn't even matter. I will have you know that I did return it because that thing is bullshit. And I was very proud of myself because I never return things like that. Um, Anyways, so that was an ADHD moment. You're fully welcome to put me on blast for that. (laughs) It was so cute though for me to be like, okay, my impulsivity is dangerous and Lori's impulsivity could become dangerous, but she's got a good partner that I know isn't going to like let them bankrupt and take a second mortgage out on their house for this stuff. So, you know, I'm driving drunk and pulling over my car on the side of the road where other people are at and going pee because I can't make it to a bathroom. And Lori's got good hair. We are not in the same league here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Aaron and I don't share money. So that, that's for a reason. Anyways, sorry, Alicia, we don't need to, we don't need to detract <laughs> from your episode about this. Sarah, let's add this to our list because I feel like this is a great thing to talk about another time. Um, So, you know, foreshadowing. So kind of self-realization around borderline. And did the other symptoms resonate with you? Like the impulsivity one is tough for people. Definitely. um, Like I have had a history of self-harm prior. And then, like you said, reckless behavior. So things like spending or even driving recklessly. Like, sure, maybe I didn't crash a bunch of times, but I used to speed like crazy. And now I think of it and yeah. I'm like, I was such an idiot, but yeah, at the time you just do all those things, reckless sex, impulsive sex, like all of these things that don't necessarily seem dangerous in the moment, but you think back and go, wow, that was really reckless. And yeah, a lot, a lot of the other symptoms. And I, of course you're like, well, I don't resonate with all of them. And then you're like, mm, all I need is five, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh shit. Yeah. I'm at like six. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I remember having that realization. I can literally remember the moment just sitting in bed and I woke my partner and I said, babe, I think I have BPD. And she's also a nursing student. So she, she's also aware of what BPD is. And she was kind of half asleep and goes like, what? Like, I don't, what do you mean? And she was like, what? No, like BPD, you're not manipulative. And I was like, but I am, it's just not intentional. It's just not intentional, but I am. And so that sort of opened that gateway. And then I ended up um, booking in with my GP and saying, this was going on. And she was great and said, okay, I'm going to refer you to psych. And thank goodness it was through school. I was referred and seen within five weeks, which is 
unheard of in our system. Uh, yeah. Is like, is that because you were a nursing student that they were able to get you in? Uh, it was because of being at the school I was at, yes, um, okay. had like their psych services. Yep. Holy shit. Good yes. to know. I was like, I just graduated from what school I assume you go to. I should have, I, I, like, I should have taken them up on that because <laughs> now I'm on like a two year wait list for a psych referral again. Yes. It's insanity. So that's something I am like forever grateful for, for sure. And did they basically just confirm the diagnosis? They were like, yeah, that's definitely what's going on. Uh, I wouldn't say she fought it necessarily, but she was definitely hesitant to sort of put that label as many doctors are and everybody sort of fears it, whether you stigmatize it or not. And so, yeah, it was sort of a lot of, oh, is this CPTSD? Is this BPD? Kind of, uh, there's some crossover between both, but um, yeah, ultimately through a lot of work, we were like, okay, yeah, this is, this is what we're dealing with. So that's when that label got slapped on that for sure. Did you welcome the label? Um, I remember like when I really got that, I said, it's 50, 50, it's equal parts relieving because it's like, oh my God, I have a reason for my behavior and my struggles. And it's the other 50% is completely overwhelming because you're thinking of all this stigma and you're thinking of, oh my God, I have this for life. And you don't know that you're going to be in recovery or not. And so it's, yeah, it's equal parts like relieving and being completely overwhelmed. What were your relationships like with family and friends? I'm interested to know what that part of your life was like, because I'm hearing that there was like a lot of overwhelm, a lot of like rumination, impulsivity, probably some self-hate, self-harm, all that stuff. But like, tell me about the interpersonal stuff for you. Uh, When do you want me to start in terms of like age? (laughs) Just generally, like, what would you say up until your diagnosis, your relationships had been like, cause I know 100% without a doubt, even as like a young queer, right? Like yourself back in the day, mine wasn't young, queer, crazy, right? Which is a thing. All of us queers know that like young queer relationships are absolutely fucking bananas, but it was like tenfold that, right? So like, what was your kind of relationship stuff like? Yeah, when it comes into rooms of like dating and relationships in that sense. My first relationship was in high school and that was actually six and a half years long. Um, And so that was very, it was the breakup with that was very friendly. It wasn't a bad ending at all. And then my relationship following that, my next serious one was absolutely bananas, as toxic as toxic can be. And of course, thinking back and looking back on it, yeah, a lot of BPD stuff played a role in that as well. And then friendship wise, I would say fairly stable in the sense of who my close friends were. But like Lori mentioned earlier, like there was some in with some groups, not in with other groups. And by the time I was in high school, I was very, very good at mirroring like we are. And so, oh, I want to be friends kind of with these people. Suddenly I like what they like. And oh my God, you're so fun. You're so this. Thank you. It's my personalities. Like, so you kind of learn to mold to other people and for that reason, I kept my close friends close, but I think I really like, yeah, you kind of want to be everybody's friend in a way. Yeah. Nobody's really talked about that on this show. It's funny. You're like bringing up all these new topics that two years later we haven't really dived into, but that whole mirroring thing is so true, right? Like, you know, I, I can go with a couple of exceptions. Some people really just hate me from the get-go because I'm a little bit obnoxious, but Sarah's like, yep. But uh, 
No, I was head nodding because people hate me. Oh, okay, okay. Hate me. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, but like, you know, I can I can go to a party and be friends with 40 people within a minute. I literally tell people like, sorry, my friend quota is taken up because I don't have room for more friends, which makes me sound like an <laughs> asshole. But like, I, cause it takes so much energy for me to be close friends with people, but I, peripherally I can walk into a room and people will just like, like me generally um, off the bat. So it's, it's a good skill to have, but it's a bit of an exhausting skill to have, I think. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So I'm super curious about, so your partner's in nursing as well at, in the same like, like time as you, like also going through the last little bit of becoming. A uh, yeah. She graduates in December of this year. So we're exactly yes. a year apart in school. Cute. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So the, the manipulative comment is super interesting and because of the stigma, it's not anything that like she she should have known better or anything like that. That's like not at all what I'm saying, but how does that feel for you now? And how has your relationship kind of been able to move through this diagnosis process together in a way that's healthy and and great? Yeah. Because when she had said, well, you're not manipulative. I kind of had to point out like, yeah, it's not on purpose, but I do these things. Like you think even as simple as like, okay, some comment she said or whatever pissed me off. At that point, am I going to say like, what you said really hurt me? Or like, maybe next time you could sit, no, you sit there, you're triggered and you ignore her. But then you think she better notice that I'm ignoring her and that I'm upset because if she doesn't, I don't feel cared for. And so that right there is the manipulation. Do Am I consciously having the intention of manipulating? Absolutely not. But that's how that behavior presents itself. Totally. And I think people think of manipulation as like very intentional. Like I'm trying to screw you over. It's like, no, I'm actually trying to get my needs met. And that's really what it comes down to. It's just been like stigmatized and shown in TV to be such a intentional act that it's really not. Yeah, absolutely. And have you run into BPD stigma in nursing since getting the diagnosis? To be honest, I don't think like uh, most of my coworkers probably don't know at my other job. A lot of my coworkers know, um, I know them a lot better and I guess people don't know, not because I'm not want to share it. It just, I, at the job I'm at is like a newer job, but then, um, just in regards to mental health, like the department I'm in, we deal with a lot of mental health, um, especially in like adolescent teenagers. Um, and so I think having that kind of impact and know maybe a lot of these, you know, these teenagers, they won't have a diagnosis of this yet, but they exhibit a lot of these behaviors and just being able to, I mean, of course you're not going to invalidate and be like, I totally understand what you're feeling. No, but in the back of my mind, maybe some of these behaviors are similar to some of the struggles I've had. And then I can use that and help care for them in a way that they feel a little bit more understood. I have no doubt that you're like the best nurse for those clients and probably many clients because of the empathy and the understanding that you're able to provide. I think more what I meant, and I mean, I was going to ask the follow-up question anyway, so you already beat me to it, but I think more what I meant is in your mental health rotations, in terms of the education piece and from teachers, like not necessarily um, stigma against yourself because they may or may not know that you have BPD, but hearing negative things about BPD within your education. As far as like, obviously none of my instructors were like speaking negatively or anything, but 
I mean, you read the textbook, you learn the material. It's this really like these people are kind of crazy and they're dangerous and they're very hard to love, very hard to be in a relationship with. And I think the biggest thing is people looking and going, oh, well, there's no, there's no pharmaceutical treatment for this. Like it's hopeless. You like, are you really going to be fixed with therapy? Um, and the answer to that is yes. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how they make it seem is like, it's this whole, it's its own ballpark of mental illness. It's like, you've got all of these other diagnoses and BPD is just this kind of like fireball of untreatable mood swings. And it, yeah, as you said earlier about the positive sides, I don't think there's not nearly enough attention on the positive side of BPD. And so then, yeah, you just learn all of those negative aspects of it and how people view it. And that alone is pretty stigmatizing. Alicia, were you working in that rotation in an inpatient psych unit? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As someone who's worked in like inpatient facilities and particularly in inpatient child psych facilities, you know, it it's as well as adult, actually, I forgot we had another side. I just, I liked the kids more. Um, It is In my experience, nurses, because they, nurses are essential, fabulous, important providers, right? I want to make sure I say that. And nurses in hospitals are always the ones who are writing treatment plans for the individuals receiving care. And so like a lot of our population is that's listening is going to be triggered by hearing nurse, right? Because like the nurses are the ones who call the codes, which means the nurses are the ones who are placing us in quote unquote therapeutic holds or holding us down against our will or giving us intramuscular and intravenous drugs against our will when we are engaging in really dangerous behavior to ourselves and others. So I have seen people with the same diagnosis as me be in devastating scenarios and positions many times in my career. And I wonder for you, like how that was being so early into having your diagnosis. Uh, It's scary. It's scary. And um, I guess the part of me that kind of dealt with that fear is thinking, okay, like I have a supportive family, I have these resources. Um, and a lot of the patients that I saw that were in those situations didn't have those supports. Like they don't have their basic safety, their basic needs met. Um, and so I think that sort of took that part out of it, but seeing, I mean, seeing inpatient and patients that are living with BPD is, yeah, you're seeing them at their low points because they're inpatient. Right. And so that it just, yeah, it's just scary to think that oh, I have that potential or like, what if that's me and the what ifs, the what ifs. I also find too, like having been on care teams, right? I'm not a nurse, but like when you're on the care team, you are representative of the abuse that happens in systems and our our people, right? Us as people with BPD and the clients out there that have BPD diagnoses are experiencing that medical systemic abuse, mental health systemic abuse at higher rates because of our like quote unquote manipulative behavior or problematic behavior. And so it's really hard to know that like you're aligned from the client's perspective with the groups of people who could be potentially harming us, knowing that like 
you know, in the back of your mind, like I'm more aligned to the client, but I can't say that because my job will be at risk. It's such an ethical dilemma. That's very hard. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, where I work are, we have psych nurses on the unit and they're absolutely phenomenal, but I do want to say that the stigma, you're never stigma free. Like I, I hear things even from the best of departments, the best of people. I remember the department I work in does have seclusion rooms. And I remember hearing one of the other nurses saying like, oh, well, if I'm just feeling crazy on my shift, I'll go chill out in there. And I just remember feeling like (gasps) gutted completely. And that was within like my first week or my first set of shifts there. And so you're like, oh, I don't want to like, you can't say that, but it's kind of like, oh my gosh. And that hit me. That's like, that's someone who should be the least stigmatizing, but yet it still exists and it exists everywhere. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's really important. Anytime we talk with medical professionals, I don't know if it makes Lori uncomfortable because I get on a tangent, but like, I really believe it's incredibly important that, um, people know who have never been in an inpatient hospital setting that are individuals with mental health diagnoses, especially our borderline people are being physically held down against their will in like 12 point restraints. Every single part of the body is being held down and the head can be held down and you can have a shield over your face. That is fucking terrifying. Again, I don't think people realize that that is happening and it's not abnormal. It's a daily occurrence in our psych units, even in Portland on the West coast where we're like, quote unquote, progressive. And so it's really hard to watch and like, know that you believe in a system, right? Like you went into nursing knowing that this is like an important field that's doing great things. And it's also doing harmful things. And I, as a therapist know that I went into a field where I have the opportunity to do great things and I have the opportunity to do really harmful things. And it's like, that weighs heavy on me. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that like, as someone who lives with BPD is a huge, like motivating factors. I'm sure it is for you being like, I want to be that advocate and things aren't going to change unless there's people who facilitate that change. And I think at least for me, that's a big part of why I'm in nursing is I do want to facilitate that change and you want to have the best care for everybody. And with someone with input, who's lived some of those experiences, it's, yeah, it's vital to be working towards those changes. I mean, mental health, you think about it, it's come so far, but Oh my God, does it have so, 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 so far to go. Especially for certain diagnoses. Right. And I think, I mean, I guess we're biased, but I firmly believe this is like the most stigmatized mental illness. And can I interrupt you really quickly? It's super random. I mean, there's a lot of research about that. There's a lot of research that indicates that that's true. True. I was just going to say, I asked my Google home, I was like, Hey Google, what's the most painful mental illness one day? And she goes, borderline personality disorder. And I was like, okay, well, if Google says it, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Truth. Yeah. and, And I mean, I think also because treatment is so difficult to access and so unknown for a lot of people. So like you said earlier, right, it's not a mental health issue where medication is a frontline treatment, which makes it more difficult for the system to understand. And it makes it more difficult for the system to treat quickly in the way that they want to treat it, which is mostly pharmaceuticals. And 
I think there's also the component of trauma that impacts us more than other challenges a lot of the time. Obviously, everybody can experience trauma. You don't have trauma and then get BPD or vice versa. It's not like mutually exclusive, but you know, you talk about you talked about um CP uh complex post-traumatic stress disorder um and what they were kind of going between that. And I know so many people have both of those diagnoses. So then you're adding in all of these additional layers and all of the comorbid conditions and all of the life circumstances that may have contributed to you getting here and then poverty and you know all of these things like social determinants of health that disproportionately will impact people just so many intersectionalities of identity as well right that that really impact the ability to access care and be treated in a way that's compassionate and what we need which i think is really the bit that's missing a lot of the time so do you ended up getting into DBT. Um, so I, you went to um, the psychiatrist at the school that you went to and they gave you the diagnosis officially, which probably helped. Where did you end up doing DBT? Uh, I did it out of the center in Vancouver. When I initially was looking for it, I applied to an email, reached out to all these different places and it was like 10 month wait list, one year wait list. And I just, I guess I had horseshoes up my ass because I got referred to psych so quickly. And then my DBTI was on the wait list and only ended up waiting, I think it was like three and a half, four months. So again, I got into that fairly quickly. Um, and so I think that was essential in timing as well. Do you mind me asking how you paid for that? Because that center is not cheap or free. No, it's not free. It's very, very many thousands of dollars. And it is the, without a doubt, the best investment I've ever made in my life. Totally. And I, that yeah. that's a super valid answer, right? I mean, I wish that my family had supported me to go to that center because I think we would have avoided a lot of challenges that we ended up with. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm super glad that that was able to, to work for you because yeah, I wish, I wish it was more accessible for sure. Yeah. And it's crazy that like, even at like thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars or whatever it ends up costing in the end, like that there's still a four month wait list and that was being lucky, right? Like, yeah, I know I've referred a couple people to there and they've basically said like, they're not even accepting clients anymore. I don't know if that's true as of the, I don't know if that's true as of when this episode comes out. So don't, don't not ask if you know what center we're talking about, but you know, that's scary because that's like one of the few resources that does exist. um, That's like a comprehensive DBT program. Mm -hmm. I think access is so, so limited because exactly like you said, um, not everybody, in fact, a lot of people are not going to have the means to have that resource of paying privately for DBT therapy. And I was at the point that if I didn't go into DBT when I did, I am not exaggerating at all and saying it saved my life. I, yeah, you're, when you're at that bottom, 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 you have no desire to be on this earth anymore. And the timing of that for me was like, just essential. Yeah. Was there anything in particular about DBT that was really impactful for you? Like one component or one skill or anything like that? It's actually funny you asked that. I think the order I ended up doing DBT in was again, it's just this like timing of it worked really well, or maybe I'm just making myself view it like that. But um, when I, so there was the, I was doing the program that was a group class once a week, um, as well as like one-on-one sessions with a therapist from the same center um, every two weeks. And so I did that. And when I enter, so they would do, I'm sure it's probably the same as everywhere else. Like you do 
two weeks of mindfulness, then you cover one of the other modules. So for me, when I started, we did two weeks of mindfulness and you're just entering and you're like, I think I know what mindfulness is. And no, I really didn't. And then after that, the first module for us was distress tolerance. And I was at a point where like having those episodes of like being triggered the next minute, I'm throwing something, I'm crashing something, I'm self-harming and then I'm crying and then I'm feeling guilty and then I'm tired. And so doing all of that through and through is exhausting as we know. And so distress tolerance, I think was the skill I needed right at the beginning. And so having that, if I didn't have that distress tolerance first, I don't know that I would have been able to be effective interpersonally or regulate my emotions. Um, So I think that um, the way that went distress tolerance first taught me, okay, like I'm not going to use these skills until I'm able to calm down. Um, I remember first joining DBT and being like, wise mind, is this a cult? Like, and then you do breathing <laughs> in and out exercises, like wise mind and ask your wise mind. I remember being like, what the fuck is this? And now I literally be like, oh, wow, what a wise decision. I'm in my wise mind. And you're just so proud yeah. of it now. <laughs> 100%. I was like, that's probably one of the skills that I use the most. But yeah, I 100% agree with you. You're like, this is bullshit. And I don't know about you, but I found mindfulness to be pretty bullshit tea at first. I still struggle with it, but I mean, it's obviously important, but it's not like fun by any stretch. Yeah. I think that's one that it's like the core of DBT, but it also is like the most difficult concept. And like, I've just accepted that you'll never really master it. And that being noticing when you are and are not being mindful is practicing mindfulness in itself. And so that acceptance piece too, I think that goes hand in hand is just like radically accepting these things that happen and being mindful of how we feel about that or how it makes us feel and how we wish to respond to things. And so I think, yeah, mindfulness as silly as it is, is kind of the core of everything. And then radical acceptance for me has been, has been so, so core to my recovery. Oh man, Sarah left right before you started talking about radical acceptance. (laughs) No, I, that's, that's one of my top skills as well. Um, I would say dear man, wise mind, radical acceptance. Mm -hmm. And now the tip skill, but I didn't used to use that as often, but now it's like very important. Um, that was one I resisted for a while, the whole ice. Like I was kind of like, this is ridiculous. And now I have like, um, I have the instant ice packs, like those ones, there's oh, from Amazon, the ones that you like, whatever, pop them or fold them. And all of a sudden they're an ice pack. And so that takes the thinking out of it. When you are raging, you don't have to go fill a sink with ice and dunk your head in it. You literally can just pop the ice pack and on your face. I've never even heard of those. That sounds incredible. Yeah, we have honestly super feelers like use the tip skill so much and the ice thing so much that now it's like part of my regular skills use, but it wasn't before. So such such a blessing that that therapy. I mean, there's a the distress tolerance skills alone, I think would have made a huge contribution to my life, but then you add them all together and it's like this beautiful mix of all of the things that I needed at my worst. Right. And I don't want to say my worst, but my, my lowest, I guess is probably the the better way of saying that. So what does recovery, I don't know if you feel like you're in recovery, but uh, everybody has different takes on recovery, but what, Mm -hmm. what does life look like for you now is maybe a better way of wording that. I mean, if we quote our girl Marsha to make a life worth living is you learn to really appreciate that. Um, And so for me, when I was at that really low point, the the conflict between my partner and I was absolute insanity. And the fact that she is still with me today is wild, but um, she's obviously been a very 
key person in recovery while simultaneously being like the one who I had the most conflict with in those times. And that's because she's my FP, you know, and I'm, she's the one I'm going to cause all that with. And so I think recovery for me, a huge part of it has been nurturing that relationship and taking a lot of the conflict out of it. Like, I mean, of course we have conflict, any good relationship has conflict, but being able to deal with that and not have it ruin the whole day or the week or however long it might be. And the biggest one for me is turning, taking what I would use to react to things and being able to respond to things. Now that's, that's sort of what, when I think of recovery is having sort of control of those emotions and really having a response to something rather than just quickly reacting to things. Yeah. The stop skill. Look at that. You bet. (laughs) It's it's like, it's like we speak our own language sometimes. It's kind of funny. So I think we probably have time to talk a little bit about your relationship with your partner, unless you want to do that kind of as a separate, separate thing. What do you think? I think we can do that. All right. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your story of coming together? I I always find that's helpful for people. It's a good old COVID love story. I <laughs> love it. Um, also a Tinder love story. So we we matched on Tinder and we went on our first date in, it would have been March of 2020. And Brutal. we had our first date. I know we had our first date and literally it was two or three days later, lockdown happened. And so we had a very good first date and we were like, well, like, do we stay in lockdown? Do we break this? Like, what should we do? And so we shockingly, respected the lockdown and we talked but we didn't see each other for two and a half months and then we went on our second date and it was like it was the day after the first date so kind of the rest is history after that yeah and we I mean we live together now um as I said she's almost done nursing school so just a couple of nurses and yeah she is the most supportive like if you think what would your ideal partner look like she is absolutely that and like just the personalities that mesh and everything, but the support and that just completely unconditional safety and support. Like, and I mean, you always hear those, like when you know, you know, with people and you're kind of like, yeah, whatever until you know, and I know, Oh, this is what Uh, people mean. (laughs) I used to be one of those people. And I was like, ew, you're such a fucking liar. Like, you know, you know, that's bullshit. And then I met my husband and I was like, ah, shit. (laughs) Right. That does exist. (laughs) Yeah. And that it's exactly that. Right. Like that, just like kind of people call them the the calm to my storm or like my rock or like that thing that I need of like a stable human that's going to be there no matter what is so valuable does your um obviously I don't want to out her in terms of her own shit that she she may or may not (laughs) consent to out to answer so you don't have to answer this if you don't want to but does she have any mental health challenges or any experience like with family with mental health challenges that have kind of helped her prepare for this Mm -hmm. yeah she's struggled with depression um has also lived quite the life uh, childhood upbringing was had a lot of complications to it um and so although it's not to the level of both being borderline and understanding on that level just having someone who understands what it's like to to struggle in general um and understand what it's like to need the support of someone else um and both of us have some similar histories in relationships like our both of us our relationship previous to the one we're in together now um both of us that was very negative experience, us feeling very lost, us feeling like the lower person, sort of feeling like we were trying, but the other person wasn't. Um, And so I think sharing 
a lot of those struggles has really helped us to be able to connect in the sense that we give each other that and things that you sort of, I mean, you learn through those bad relationships as bad as they are, you learn what works for you, what doesn't, what boundaries you have and what you set. And so I think as cliche as it is, those shitty toxic relationships really allow you to recognize when something's good and be able to appreciate it. Yeah. And you learn something from every moment of those, right? Even not that anybody should have to go through shitty toxic relationships. I wish that that didn't exist, but it does change who you are, I think, in some ways for the better in the long run. That's in some ways like you said, she doesn't have borderline. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably a good thing. But to to understand the struggle, and it's not that it's not that two people with borderline can't fall in madly in love and have a great life together. But personally, I feel like it would not be the best for me, at least like I, I think having experience with mental health issues is helpful, because at least like they kind of understand that perspective. And you have stuff that you can talk about there. But yeah, two border people with borderline would be a little volatile, I think. Yeah, I mean, again, yeah, I don't want to speak for anyone. I'm sure there's got to be people out yeah, there who make 100%. that work. And I think for myself, I rely on and need that stability from my partner so much that if, and I mean, I was at a point of such severe instability that I think if that was met with more instability, it would be a dumpster fire. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's pretty much my thoughts too. You're both nursing slash in nursing school so your schedules are probably a nightmare together Uh, yeah usually pretty pretty nightmarish (laughs) so how does that feel like abandonment wise like do you does that ever trigger your kind of abandonment or loneliness or anything before I would say yes like earlier kind of like pre-dbt um I was very open about my fear of abandonment to the point where what summer would that have been 2021 yeah, it would have been that summer, um, or was it the summer for less? Anyways, I remember she was going to one of her work shifts and she was serving at the time and literally just normal person, normal thing, go to work. And I remember she left for work and I just started bawling at home. And it was that fear of abandonment. And I was like, she's going to work and like it's nighttime and like she doesn't even care if I'm back. And like, what? And I remember after being like, that was that was, if I'm checking the facts, that reaction was not warranted at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, totally. But yeah, that fear of abandonment is is definitely real. And I think the reason now, I, I mean, I'm not going to say I don't feel it. I do. Um, but I'm able to process it and deal with it because I've proven to myself that, as I said, I have that unconditional safety with her, which is, it's really unmatched. I can't, can't even explain how essential that is to me. But I think having that really helps to relieve and at least help me deal with the fear of abandonment. Cause it is, it's, it's real for sure. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're both in that career path probably helps, right? Because you know, what's happening at work. Like you're, yeah. it's not, it's not like you're working a, a nine, to, nine to five or whatever, and they're working something totally different. And you're kind of like, well, you're never here on weekends. Right. Because I think that would be really hard, but because you're both just like, you know, working random shifts here, left, right, yes. and center. I mean, if yeah. our shifts align, then we're both because it's like 7am to 7pm or 7pm to 7am. And so if our shifts align, they align. And if they don't, by the time I leave for work, she's coming back for work. And by the time she gets back, I'm already gone. So if it's right. four days of opposite shifts. It's like, see you in four days, quite literally. <laughs> yeah, totally. You wouldn't overlap at all. Cause do you work at the same facility? No, no. Yeah. So yeah, like you wouldn't even see each other. That's right. Hard. Yep. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to kind of go through together or part of your story that we've missed? 
I think we've touched on most of it. I think really a big like takeaway for me through all of this journey is when I was first dealing with it um, and like first received the diagnosis, like we all know it's so, so, so painful what we feel. And I think because it was so painful and I felt so misunderstood, I was really frustrated in the fact that like, I can't make people understand what I'm feeling. And like, I need everybody to know how much I'm suffering because nobody understands it. And I think I just, I got to a point where I learned to accept that most people aren't going to understand what it feels like. And I really learned that spending that energy trying to articulate the things I experienced wasn't helping me. It was causing me to focus and ruminate on those things that caused the suffering. Whereas you take that energy spent and spend it on, okay, well, how can I, how can I sort of move forward with this? And yeah, to be honest, like on this, on this podcast, absolutely. Let's break it down. Let's talk about it. But is it worth my energy telling so-and-so that, oh my God, I feel this and I go through this? No, it's not, it's not even worth it to me anymore. So I think you learn again, surprise to accept it. (laughs) Yeah. And, and like realizing that it's not necessarily a bad thing to feel a lot all the time. I mean, it sucks sometimes, right? But that radical acceptance is also like, this is who I am. And I have the skills to be able to live a normal, healthy life and a life worth living. But this is still who I am. And I'm okay with that. In a lot Exactly. Of and we have to remind ourselves, like you say, of all the positive things that come with living with BPD, like the amount I can relate to others and empathize is like, astronomical that's like that is my super skill is being able to nurture and kind of understand and validate people so that's one really good thing of it and I mean we're spontaneous we're funny we're this we're that so there's there's a lot of really good things about it too and I think I think and I hope that anybody listening to this can learn to appreciate that as well I'm sure they can. I really want to end on that positive, but I also have a, a follow-up question, which is maybe not positive. So we might cut this at the end if, if it doesn't really come off well. But the empathy piece is so important and it's so beautiful. And I know for me, like I take in energies of the people around me and I'm not like, that sounds so like hippie and gross, but like I do, like, I, I just like, I can walk into a room and I know the energy of the room and I take all of that on and it's exhausting and everything. Absolutely. Working in a hospital and you're an ER, right? Yeah. Okay. So you're doing my jobs are ER. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 For people and animals, you are in a room full of presumably chaotic energy for 12 hours a day or more. Mm -hmm. How do you cope with that? I kind of touched on it earlier. I think that being able to cope with it at work kind of helps, or at least helped before, like having that deficit of being able to cope with my own emotions at home. And like for a long time, it was very, I'm able to handle that. I do this at work and I come home and I have no coping skills all of a sudden. But I think, yeah, being able to tune into that, like those super feeling powers and be able to really you kind of have to, you get to a point where you have that, you have a bit of a boundary, like you for sure, you feel what they're feeling. And I think that's part of providing good care is being able to put yourself in that person's shoes and use relational practice. And I think you just learn to sort of create that boundary between I can care for these people, I can feel what they're feeling, but it's not my shit to take home with me in a way. And don't get me wrong, there's the odd thing that you you take home with you and you're thinking about for days or when you go to sleep at night but I think you just yeah you learn to have that boundary and being able to have control of that chaos at work is 
is, yeah, it's, that was a skill that I had at work, but didn't have at home. That's super interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a combination of like healthy compartmentalization, but still providing good care. Cause I think that's the part that we run into. And I know compassion fatigue is a word in healthcare that some people love. Some people hate. I think it's probably very accurate to be honest. And yeah, I don't know why people hate it. I, I know that I've heard people argue against it before, but anyways, compassion fatigue of just like, you know, being there for people for 12 hours a day, four or five days a week, like that is exhausting. And I, it's gotta be more exhausting when you're feeling all of those feelings times a thousand. Absolutely. And that, um, I mean, anyone, especially in healthcare will be able to tell you like, as someone who has had a career where I have completely burned out and I've hit that low and I've had to be like, wow, I need to take a month off work because I am very ill. And I think, yeah, you sort of, you really need to focus when it comes with learning to notice things about yourself when you start to feel that burnout and kind of allow yourself to step back. Because if you just keep pushing through, pushing through, which again, I'm guilty of doing because you just want to help everybody, but really being able to recognize that, okay, I'm, I'm sort of reaching a limit here. This is affecting me in ways that I don't want it to be. And so being able to take that step back and notice when you are, when you are being affected too much by that stuff is definitely key. Absolutely. I think that's like a really well-rounded answer to that question, right? Where it's, it's not as simple as just turning it off, but it's being able to compartmentalize in, in the best way. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate you so much for sharing your story with us. It's been super great getting to know you and it's always good to meet people that are local too, um, through this Mm -hmm. process. So yeah. Any, any last words that you want to share before we wrap up for the day? necessarily any last words just to let anybody out there who knows that struggling is it's hard and you can make it through it yeah awesome thank you so much alicia it's been a pleasure to getting to know you of course thanks for having me anytime Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.